And you can turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we come to God's word, let's, let's uh, pray this morning. Father in heaven, we just uh, thank you that we could gather around uh, your word. Lord, it's our desire just uh, to know you better, to be known better by you, Lord. We ask that as we uh, just wrestle through this passage of scripture this morning, that you would search our hearts and search our minds, Lord. I, I pray, God, just uh, that this morning there would be a demonstration of your spirit's power in our hearts and lives as we just look at the simplicity of the gospel and your love for us, oh God. I pray, Father, that you would uh, fill our hearts with hope. God, I ask just uh, for your spirit's anointing this morning as we make our way through this, this text, Lord. We just give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, towards the end of the chapter this morning. Now, throughout uh, these letters to the Thess- Thessalonians, the first and second letter, we've been talking much about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his appearing. And where things left off in chapter 2, we kind of wrapped up last week at verse 12. Uh, the conversation was about certain prophecies regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were talking about the Antichrist. We were talking about those who reject God. Some of the situations and things that would be happening in the world in regards to nations of the world and Israel and the Temple Mount and all these such things. And you might recall that that I warned you at the start of the message last week, not to roll your eyes and shut down your heart before we dove into the text. Because sometimes that's the attitude that we can have towards prophecy. Well, in, in, and why that was important is uh, the reason where, or the, the direction that Paul's about to go here. Because he is going to move from prophecy to the practical. And that is kind of the movement, the direction that should always happen. That's the transition that should always happen. When there's discussion on prophecy, it's important that you move towards the, uh, the practical. And so, you know, one of the themes we've been pointing out and I've been saying about this uh, letter to the Second Thessalonians is hope. Steadfast Christian hope. Those guys over there are just getting blasted by the sun. That is so nice. Every, yeah. <laughs> I see everybody turning their heads. Oh, it's great. Um, you know, steadfast Christian hope is a theme of the second letter to the Thessalonians. Then the discussion on prophecy that we had last week and just the thoughts about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ should lead us practically to the development of char- the character of hope. It's a fruit of the spirit. And, uh, you know, just... As we, as we move into this text here, it's, it's going to get practical for us. And so, you know, we could talk about prophecy and all that stuff, but let me ask you this. Do you believe that God's word is true? Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal God who clothed himself in humanity? Do you believe that he died on the cross for the sins of the world? That he was buried and he was raised to life? And that he appeared to many witnesses and ascended into heaven. Do you believe that? And do you believe what the Bible prophesies that Jesus is coming again? Well, that leaves us with some responsibility. And as Paul has been talking about the coming of Jesus, he's going to move the conversation to the practical. 
What's the responsibility that we're carrying when we hold on to these hopes? You know, the world around us, society, culture, it has its values. It has its versions of ethics and morality. You know, the godless nature of much of society around us makes it tough to live for Christ at certain times. You know, you know it's, it's, living in this world in some ways is kind of like living in the midst of a pressure cooker for a Christian. I mean, we're being harassed and pressed and the world is pressing its values on us and sin is pressing its values on us and Satan is trying to coerce us and and draw us away from God. And we're just, as Christians, often harassed and, and badgered by sin, the world, and the devil. And yet at the same time, the Spirit of God is working in our hearts, teaching us, teaching us to resist Restraining us from sin, empowering us to live for God. And as you think about our relationship to the world, you know, compromise with this world and its values and its system of values is something that can be very easy. You know that and I know that. It's easy when we compromise to lose sense, sense of our hope and it can just our hope can descend into despair. In that battle, it's easy for my, with compromise, it's easy for my heart uh, to get discouraged. But in this passage that we're going to look at, you get this sense that Christ followers are expected to be different. You know, as we talk about these things that we believe, there's an expectation from the Lord that we would live differently in light of those things that we hold on to. The truth about Jesus Christ necessitates that we be different. And so what does that mean? Okay, God's word is true. Okay, yes, Jesus is the eternal God who clothed himself in human flesh. He, he gave his life on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He revealed himself to many witnesses. Sent it into heaven. He's coming back again. But what is the responsibilities that I am left with in light of those things? And so your responsibility, my responsibility to the, those truths is what Paul's about to talk about here. And so let's dive in. The first thing he's going to say is this. It, here's your responsibility to the truth. You need to believe it. You need to believe it. You know, earlier in this chapter, Paul talked about those who refuse to love the truth and they, they believe the lie. The lie in reference, as we talked about last week in regards to Genesis chapter 3 and the deception of of Eve, how Satan came to her and he presented her with that lie. He said, you know, you can be like God. Uh, essentially, the lie was, you know, God is holding out on you. He's not, he's not honest in his intentions toward you. He is not revealing to you uh, all of his, his goodness. And, and there's this lie that Satan was presenting that ultimately God does not love you, that God is not good. And, and Satan still suggests that same lie to each one of us. And so one of the battles that we are in always is to believe the truth. It sounds like a simple thing, but look at what Paul says here. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul thanks God for this church. We've seen him do that before. He did that in the first letter. He, 
He just, in a prayer, said, I thank you, God, for these people. And he went off in a rant. And he's going to do that here again. What was Paul thankful? As we talk about believing in the truth, what were some things that the Thessalonian church understood? Well, the first one that Paul talks about is this fact, that God loved them. That God loved them. You know, so many uh, religions, uh, spiritual practices, Teach all, they, they teach all sorts of different things about God. That he's some sort of impersonal force. You know that you know, people replace God and instead they, they talk about the universe. They talk about mother nature. Or maybe they teach about God and it's in this impersonal sense that you need to awaken the divine within you. The Christ consciousness and these different things. Or religion teaches about God, that he is a God who is, who is angry and you can never appease that sense of his anger. And so ultimately, you know, he is, he is unknowable, but none of those things is true regarding the living God. None of those things are true regarding the, the God of the Bible. None of those things are true regarding the Lord Jesus Christ for the, the Bible. If it reveals one thing, it reveals this, that God loves you. That God loves you. And when I talk about believing that truth, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing that you have to, in, in your pursuit of Christ, just come to terms with in your heart and in your mind. Settle it. God loves you. You know, John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, under the cover of night, as a secret follower of Jesus, and he had some questions for him and wanted to talk to him, you know, he, he understood, he, he was trying to understand the identity of Jesus. He said, good teacher, I, I, I know that no one could come from God unless, uh, no one could do the things that, that you are doing unless they came from God. See, he was trying to understand the nature of Jesus the nature of God's kingdom and what God was doing in Israel. And Jesus began to tell him about the necessity that a man be born again. Jesus said to him that a man will never see, a person will never see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Not speaking of being born of the flesh, as we know, but being born of the spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just as you entered this world physically, uh, you, you, were, you were born physically by your mother. So you come to life spiritually by being born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus told this to Nicodemus, it just messed with his head. You know, go home and read uh, John chapter 3 today. He, he, I, I mean, the scripture doesn't tell us what he thought, but I think he thought things like this. You know, I love God. Uh, I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a good person. I study the scriptures. You know, I offer my sacrifices. I, I pay my tithes. And, and whatever it was, he went down his spiritual checklist list, and with a self-check, he said, I'm good. I'm good with God. And God obviously loves me. But I guess the question is this. How do you judge that? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? Is it because you're prosperous? Well, there are wicked people who are prosperous and there are good people who are prosperous. Because, is it because rain falls on your crops as the Psalm says? No, David said the rain falls on the wicked, the evil and the good. 
Is it because, you know, you are good? Well, if you take a look at the Ten Commandments and just go down that list and, and weigh yourself, evaluate your life by going through them, they, they prove that by God's standards, none of us are good. So how do we know that God loves us? That's the question. You know, how do you know God loves you? Let me ask you this. How, how, does your know, how do you know your mom loves you? How did you know your mom loves you? You can say things out loud this morning. Tell me. How did you know? What did your mom? Yeah. Just speak out, John. She took care of you. Okay. What else, guys? She said she did. Okay. She told you she loved you. Yeah. You're born from her. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. She disciplined you. I'm sure that took a lot of work in that household. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. She defended you. She defended you. Okay. She taught you. Yeah. Yeah. She sacrificed for you. Always there. Pardon me? Yeah, affection. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Man, moms are awesome. Dads did lots of stuff too. You know, the question is, how do you know that God loves you? All of those things above, but there's a Sunday school answer that's the best one. How do you know that God loves you? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. There we go, Lynn. You're, you're sharp this morning. Jesus. The secret to really discovering that God loves you is this. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus. And Nicodemus needed to discover that. And Jesus said to him in John chapter 3, verse 16, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, God's sending of Jesus into the world is the ultimate revelation of God's love. And we light the candle this morning in regards to this Advent wreath and talk about hope. The advent of Jesus is the ultimate expression of hope, but it's also the ultimate expression of God's love. And so you may ask yourself, you know, does God love me? You may doubt that God loves you. At times you may second guess that God loves you, but this morning I want to challenge you to wrestle that down in your heart all the time. See, it's a human heart to just resist it. My heart resists it. I've been following Jesus for lots of years now. At times, that argument just rises up. God doesn't love you. That lie from Genesis chapter 3 comes. Satan's deception that argues God does not have your best intentions in mind. God is not good. All of these different things. And we second guess. But this morning, settle it in your heart. God loves you. And here's how you know. Because you're hearing about Jesus Christ. Because he's telling you through his word about the ultimate expression of his love. How do you know God loves you? Because you're hearing about Jesus. And so when Paul talked about the Thessalonians, he said this, you know, you 
You heard about the love of God. You responded in repentance. You turned from your sin. You turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You believed in your hearts that, that he died for your sins and that God raised them from the dead. And with their mouths, you know, they confessed Jesus as Lord. And Paul said, I thank God because I know that God loves you. I know it. And how did he know it? Because they had discovered who Jesus was. They had surrendered their lives to him. They had responded to Jesus. See, the story of God's redemption is not the account of some impersonal fluke. Salvation is rooted and grounded in God's love for us. And God proved his love when he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place and for your sin. God loves you. He loves you. And so in this text, you know, it's just the simplest thing. Settle it in your heart. Believe the truth. Let the Holy Spirit confirm it. God loves you. And when you doubt it, just set your thoughts on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the truth. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 3, verse 12, Jacob, or in chapter 3, Jacob was speaking certain blessings over his sons. And he said this one about Benjamin. He said this. Benjamin was called the beloved of the Lord. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure for he shields him all day long and the Lord loves rest between his shoulders. You know what's between your shoulders? Your mind, your head right here sitting on top. And God wants you to have rest in your mind. He wants the anxieties and the pressures of this world to be relieved, and he wants to replace them with his rest. And how that happens is this, when God's people rest secure in the fact that their Father in heaven loves them. He shields you all day long. And so, you know, entering into that loving relationship with God is, is through Jesus Christ, is where we can just be assured in our hearts that 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 God will continue to love us and we will experience the benefits and the blessings of being beloved by the Lord. So these people, they needed to believe the truth. The second thing Paul said to them in, in verse 13 is there is that, uh, that God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. God chose them. He chose them for this reason to save them. You know, when we talk about God's love, you know, uh, John chapter 3 verse 16 says, God so loved the world. God loves the whole world. There's no one that God does not love. But as we look around the world, we recognize something as we put the puzzle together that love alone for someone will not save them. Because God loves the whole world, and yet clearly the whole world is not saved, you know? I I would say this, as we talk about love in general, the world seems to have a very poor understanding of what love is. You know, to illustrate that, you, you just need to look no further than the value placed on marriage within our culture and within our society. You know, you know, culture talks about falling in and out of love. You know, why did your relationship end? Well, we fell out of love. We, we didn't love one another anymore. And the reason why that happens is because culture often reduces love to a feeling. And as long as the feeling and the emotion is present and it's there, then everything is fine. But when the feeling goes, then obviously the love went with it as well. And if a 
if, if in a relationship you reduce love to a feeling, you will never ever find a long-term relationship. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. And when you choose to love, you know, I say this, the feelings follow. You know, I always remember hearing a pastor say uh, back, way back when, before I was married, uh, Lisa and I were dating. And uh, I heard this pastor speak and he said something that stuck with me. I'll, I'll never forget it. He said this, uh, talking about finding your spouse and being in love. He said, choose your love and love your choice. Choose your love and love your choice because love is a choice. It's a decision. And if that's the case, feelings can come and go. And, you know, there's, you know, if we, if we were just to pull the room this morning, you know, we went around and, and talked to some of the older couples that are here that have been married for a long time, you know, they'll probably tell you that, that the feelings uh, that accompanied their decision to love their spouse, you know, those, those puppy love feelings have come and gone over the years. You know, the feelings that they experienced at the beginning of their relationship uh, aren't the same as they are now, but in many ways, I think that they probably express that they're deeper and more wonderful in a, in a different sort of sense. See, love is a choice. And God chose the Thessalonian church. He chose to save them. And that, that is a choice to make those individuals uh, further beneficiaries of his love. The grace and mercy of God towards us in Christ Jesus is an expression of his love. God in his grace gave us in Christ what we do not deserve. And in his mercy, he does not give us what we deserve. Rather, God gave what I deserve to Jesus, death. Now, why God chooses one and not the other I don't know. I mean, we could just dive into that conversation and say, well, if God loves the whole world, why not this one and why that one? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's an endless conversation. And I'm not going to try to, you know, explain away the sovereignty of God. I'm not going to try to explain away the election of God. It is a great, great mystery in the scripture. You know, the scripture uh, doesn't give us an answer for that. You know, I would say man has a will. He has a, he, he has a free will and God is sovereign. But Jesus said this, no one can come to the father unless, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. John six forty four. See, salvation is always the result of the active grace of God in our lives. No one earns salvation. It's not earned on the basis of works. It's not earned on the basis of beliefs. Salvation is the result of God's choice to make it available to you. And yet the fact that God, God chooses uh, does not limit the availability of his salvation. It's for, it's for everyone. And so there's, you know, if we cruise the pages of the scripture, cruise the pages of the New Testament, there's, there's, there's no scripture, there's no statement in scripture that says, you know, salvation is not available to certain persons. Or that God has, uh, you know, chosen some for damnation. When God calls, his purpose is to save. Salvation. And he chooses. And those he chooses, he loves. And salvation speaks 
just of our relationship to God being altered. No longer are we aliens, no longer are we strangers to God, but to him we become his children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul talks about believing the truth, he's God loves you. God chose you. Also, he says, God set you apart. Look at verse 13 again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The word sanctification means uh, to be set apart. Set apart unto God. And there's two parts to that process we read here. God's got a part, and I have a part. See that? Uh, Through sanctification by the Spirit. That's God's part. Through belief in the truth. That's my part. That I hold on to the truth. Uh, Salvation and sanctification. That being set apart unto God. Those two things go together. You know, those who would claim to... uh, be chosen and, and saved and yet lack the evidence of being sanctified, a separateness from the world, uh, are really on shaky ground. You know, when a person is, is chosen by God, you can see it in the fact that there, there's a fresh holiness and sanctification in their life that is a work from the Spirit. You know, often when people make a commitment to Jesus Christ and I get to have a conversation with them a little bit later, I'll start to ask them about what's changed in their life. Because I want to hear what's changed. How has God worked by his spirit to do something different in your life? If it's real, there's got to be change. Are you more loving? Do you have a greater sense of peace? Uh, Whatever it might be, you can go down the list. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction uh, conviction of belief upon a sinner. You know, when I, when I think of my own life, when you think of your lives, I think if you, if you were to go back in, in, in your mind's eye, in hindsight, and just consider how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus, you realize that uh, far more now in hindsight that the Spirit of God was working. Dot, 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 dot. There, 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 there. This happened, that happened, that happened. And here I thought I was journeying to God, and I didn't realize how greatly... God was calling me. See, God called them. Look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain glory, the glory of God, sorry, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does God call? He uses human instruments to bring the gospel. He he uses human instruments to proclaim the good news. For the Thessalonians, God and his sovereign plan worked on the hearts of Paul and Silas and Timothy and they traveled to Thessalonica and they they preached the good news of Jesus Christ and the Thessalonians trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation. And as that happens, as God calls you and brings you to the gospel, his purpose is, is that he wants to bring about glory in your life, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, God gives us glory. When, when sinners uh, believe God's truth, he saves them. You know, when we go back in this chapter, we talk about those who believe the lie. They rejected uh, the truth of God and they bought into a lie. They, they loved darkness rather than light and their minds became darkened. 
this crew in Thessalonica, they responded to the gospel. They believed and they were being brought as God called them into a process of coming into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you and I are in that process too. What an awesome promise that we're given that someday we will share in the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you could, here we are, we're just a crew from Gibson's, a little town, maybe a little bit obscure, a little bit unknown, bit of a strange place in some ways. But one day, the God of the universe will reveal us and we will share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll share in his glory. And so our responsibility is this. Believe the truth. Believe the truth. God, God loves you. He's chosen you. He's called you. He set you apart for glorious purposes. The second thing that this church needed to do was this. They needed to stand firm and hold on to the truth. That's another responsibility that we have. To stand firm and to hold on. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You know, remember the Thessalonian church had this air, this false teaching that had come into their midst. Uh, people were there that were proclaiming that the day of the Lord had come. People were there that were proclaiming that they were living in the midst of the tribulation. And, um, you know, there was just this deception that had crept into the church. And in the midst of that, God's people needed to learn to stand firm and to hold on to the truth. That's why this letter was written to the Thessalonians. They must not be deceived by false prophecy. They must not be deceived by false reports or by forged letters. They need to stand firm in the truth and, and in the gospel that they received through the preaching of the, the Apostle Paul. You know... Uh, when you think about standing firm in Christ, we have all that is necessary to stand firm. You know, what we need to do is draw on the resources that God has made available to us through the word of God, through the promises of God. Take hold of the word. You know, so often uh, people quit on the Lord. They, they quit in ministry or they, they, they quit in, in different areas because the pressure of life is just the pressure of culture, squeezing them, whatever it is, the pressure of sin, the pressure of the world, the pressure of the devil. And there's this sense, I cannot stand in the midst of that. But the reality is this, that is a self-deception. Because the scripture proclaims to us that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know, when we feel like quitting, we feel like complaining, what we need to do is stand firm and hold on. Remind ourselves of who Jesus Christ is. Remind ourselves of the God we serve. Remind ourselves of the promises of God's word and take hold of it. You know, like Eve, all of us with that human nature are so, so prone to, to believe lies and reject truth. I just find that about myself. Do you find that? I'm like, I'm quick to believe a lie before I accept the truth at certain times. Paul says this, you got, you got to stand firm. 
hold on to the tradition. Tradition. Hold on to the tradition. It's not speaking of fiddler on the roof kind of tradition. Not the traditions of men and the endless repeated repetition of customs of the past. You know, uh, when he talks about tradition here, he's talking about the teachings of the apostles. Those who uh, were directly with Jesus while he was on earth. The 12. Those to whom uh, the Lord Jesus appeared to in a, in a vision like Paul. Tradition simply refers to the revelations of the reality that they received from God. The mind of God was made known to them and they proclaimed it. They proclaimed the good news. And he says, you, you need to hold on to those traditions. Stand firm in the things that you were taught. You know, it's impossible for a church to stand firm unless it holds on to the traditions of the apostles. You see it in our culture all over the place. You know, the church in many places on shaky ground because they've begun to reject the truth of the apostles, the truth of the gospel, uh, the apostolic teachings of the church. And as a church begins to reject those things, they, they fall into error. They fall into weakness. And so Paul says, you, you need to stand firm. You need to hold on to these things. You know, don't, don't look into the scriptures to, to find rules about how to live. Search the scriptures to find Jesus Christ and how to have a relationship with him. He is, he is the resource and, and the refuge of the believer, the strong tower, the name that we trust in for all times for us. So Paul says, guys, uh, believe the truth, stand firm and hold the truth. And thirdly, this in verse 16 and 17, we'll wrap up with these two verses. Practice the truth. Now he says this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Establish them. May, they, may you practice these things. You know, I would say this. When you're in trouble... You know, when you're in that, one of those the pressure cookers got you, you're being squeezed. Expect God to help you. Expect God, who is your defense, to come and supply the strength that you need in the midst of that pressure cooker. You know, watch him as he unfolds the solution to your difficulty. You know, so many times in... You know, I could just tell different testimonies and I'm sure we could go around the room and there'd be so many testimonies where we're in the midst of the pressure cooker. We called out and God brought some relief that it was just like, there's no, there's no other explanation except that God was the source of the relief that came in the midst of that. You know, in finances, some relationship trouble and some uh, battle with temptation and in some whatever work situation, family, whatever. We called out on the Lord and he came and he brought the resources to help us stand in the midst of those times. See, Paul was concerned about two things in regards to practicing the truth. He said, he said it this way, uh, establish them, may God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 
their work and their word, their saying and their doing. What's Paul saying? May, may God establish you so that you can walk the talk. So that you wouldn't just proclaim Christ and your life not match, but so that your life would match the words that you preach. You know, we know that we're not safe by good works, but good works are the evidence of salvation. You know, and it's easy for us as a church to just emphasize guarding the truth and downplay living for the truth. Living lives of holiness. You know that one of the best ways for us to, to guard the truth is to live it, to walk in it, to practice truth, to walk in holiness, to, to pursue those things. And what we see here in this passage is this, is that believers have uh, the power to do what they ought to do because God has supplied it through his spirit and through the promises of his word. The power of God is, is ready and available to help you as you decide to follow him in whatever area it might be. Doesn't mean, you know, the struggle's eliminated. You think of some sin issue and, that you're battling with and wrestling with. The power of God is ready and available to help you stop and to conquer that issue or matter of sin. Doesn't mean the struggle will be eliminated. Not immediately, maybe. But God can give you the strength to keep on fighting. And so as, as Paul talks about prophecy, the coming of the Lord Jesus, and the practical things that are going to, and he's going to go further in the next chapter, about the, the practical things that the church needs to do, that God's people need to do. It's just this. It's this simple. Believe the truth. Stand firm and hold on to the truth and practice it. Let it settle in your heart. Hang on to it and walk in the truth of what God has promised and what he has called us to do. Let's pray this morning and invite the worship team to come on up here. Stand with me.